Before we get to my guest this week, uh, who is TV correspondent and stand-up comic Charles Pellegrin, I just wanted to give an update about a film screening I hosted last week. Last Friday, I hosted a screening of The Man Who Built Cambodia, a documentary about the incredible uh, Cambodian architect Van Molivan, which I co-produced uh, a few years ago. I messed up with the RSVPs. I uh, <laughs> I made a poster with all the details. I sent it out to my friends and contacts, and, and they sent it out to their friends. And I thought, okay, well, that'll probably fill up all the seats. Um, what I didn't quite understand was that the venue, uh, Camera Estilo, was also handling RSVPs. Um, so I got a message from Yao, the very patient and very kind uh, owner of Camera Estilo, that all the seats were full. And normally that would be fantastic. Um, but I didn't want anyone to be disappointed. And at the end of the day, I, I realized that this was... Uh, well, it was my fault. So we added a second screening and I got the message out in as many ways as I could that if you hadn't reserved the spot, you should come to the 930 show. I was hoping there would be some no shows. Um, I didn't have to worry. Some people who RSVP did not come. Some people who did not RSVP did come and every seat was filled. And the Q&A after was, was excellent. So thank you, Matthew Hu Sinyu. Thank you, James Welsh. Thank you, Sun Yao at Camera Stilo. And um, thank you to everyone who came. Let's, let's do that again soon. Charles Pellegrin is here today. He's France 24's China correspondent. He's also a stand-up comic. He has a couple of shows coming up um, that you should see if you're in Beijing. Here's a clip from his show, Sparkling White Man. Uh, no, it's, uh, I moved here from Paris. Before coming to Beijing, I lived in Paris. And there's a, there's a thing you gotta know about, about life in Paris versus life in Beijing. Uh, you might not know this. Um, there's this thing that, they, that you guys have here in Beijing that Parisians don't have. And you may have heard about it. It's called space. <laughs> I know it's surprising because Beijing has 20 million people and Paris only 11. But Beijing is a city of 20 million people that was designed for 20 million people. Paris is a city of 11 million people that was designed for like four middle-aged French guys in their smoke clouds, <laughs> oversized egos. It's just not the right way to go. And this affects people's uh, behaviors and how they interact, how they brag. That's a, you can tell a lot about some, how someone lives by the way they brag. Beijingers brag like they've got all the space and all the time in the world. They don't care, it's direct, you know? Like a Beijinger will be on his scooter, belly out, just in the middle of the third ring road, do like a 12-point turn. <laughs> he's live streaming on Douyin, he's got a little dog on his lap, he's holding a baby for some reason. <laughs> shit. He's also got like a Peppa, a Peppa Pig sticker on his Lamborghini uh, back home in his garage. It's just like he's a Beijinger, he doesn't give a shit. He is Superman, basically. <laughs> French people, we don't brag that way. We brag in a way that's completely twisted and not direct. Like we're like we're kind of like not fitting right in our skins, you know. Like a French person bragging about his apartment. It sounds weird. It's like, hello, come on over to my studio. On the sixth floor, I do have an elevator. <laughs>
Charles Pellegrin is the Beijing correspondent for France 24, a news channel based out of Paris. He's also a stand-up comic. I saw a recording of the show on my iPad last night. It's called Sparkling White Man. It was very funny. I was literally on the floor laughing a couple of times, especially at his description of temperature checks in Beijing, which, you know, if you live here, you've you've definitely gone through this experience. Uh, he's performing again on May 15 at Kosi Kosi Bistro at the 798 Art District in Beijing. He's with me in my home studio in Beijing. Charles, thanks for coming. Um, why is your show called Sparkling White Man? Um, yeah, it's, it's one of the first jokes in the show, really. It's like, I... I uh, I am French, and it's uh, it's very confusing for a lot of people because I don't sound French. So, thus, I'm I am to I'm to I am to people what sparkling white wine is to champagne. So, thus, sparkling white sparkling white man. So yeah, so you're French, as you say, but you actually didn't go to France until you were an adult, until you were 22 years old. What were you doing before then? Um, I was a very privileged expat kid, really. Uh, my parents and my dad's uh, work brought a, got, got him to move around the world. And uh, I was actually born in London. Then we moved to Southeast Asia, where we live in Singapore and Bangkok, then went to South Africa. And then I went to, uh, to Canada for college. And it's after my time in Canada that I actually moved and lived in France for the first time. You know, it's funny, when we were watching, uh, I was watching your show last night with my wife, and she said, oh, I think, I think he went to uh, international schools. And I said, why? I said, well, he just has the international school accent, you know, which she has as well, because this is exactly her path, too. I mean, her dad was, you know, with the IMF and the World Bank and with um, with uh, Asian Development Bank. And so they, they, you know, they moved all over the place. Um, what did What did your parents do? What did your dad do? So my dad worked in uh, in finance for a French investment bank, and that's what got him to move around. I actually didn't go to international schools. I always went to the French schools. Uh, but like French schools abroad do put a lot of emphasis on, uh, you know, learning learning English. And uh, and also I think that just the fact of being in, in English-speaking countries and mostly as well, it's, uh, it's, it's consuming vast quantities of mostly American media. I mean, a lot of this is just like soft power seeping into into like Americans don't realize how much strength they have uh, just on the basis of their culture that they can have like little clones around the planet, kind of like me. And you meet people like this in China uh, on the comedy circuit. There's a bunch of people like that as well who just are kind of Americanized. You know, it's a, it's a pretty interesting phenomenon. When did you start telling jokes? I started the first time time I ever did stand up was back in 2013. So now over yeah over seven years, and it was just an open mic that I tried. Um, I tried with a, both with a friend of mine. We both signed up to do five minutes, and we kind of like kind of egged each other on to not you know to not back out of it because it's pretty terrifying. And I I did my five minutes, and thankfully I had lots of uh, well-meaning friends in the crowd who laughed enough that I wasn't too discouraged. But I still waited for another six months before I did another open mic. And after that, I started doing it more regularly. Um, so it, it, it came, yeah, about seven, seven, eight years ago. Yeah. But now you have a half hour. I have a half hour. I have potentially more as well. There's some stuff that I didn't put in that, in that half hour that you saw that I performed in Beijing in November just because I felt like it didn't fit with a general sort of theme. Um, I was pretty happy, actually, that I got to build a half hour that had some sort of narrative thread and that had some sort of co- cohesion to it. It wasn't just some loosely assembled uh, jokes that, I, that I'd written over the years. So I was pretty, pretty proud about that. Yeah, and for me, it was... Well, first of all, it was, it was really funny. And I, and I actually 
related to a lot, some of what you said. I mean, what, you know, when, when we were talking about earlier, that you, the fact that you went to France as an adult, you know, I grew up in Canada, but I went to Ar- Armenian schools uh, in grade school. And uh, I'd never been to Armenia until I was something like 30 years old. And I just remember this feeling of being in a foreign country and just miraculously being able to communicate with people. I mean, it sort of emphasized my foreignness, you know, even while it heightened my connection to the country. What was that like for you when you were in France? When I moved there for the first time, I definitely spent a lot of time trying to figure out how I fit within. And I think especially I didn't just move to France. I moved to Paris, which is its own, you know, it's the big city. And then there's, you know, there's a whole sort of like mythos around Paris that makes that, that, that makes people go there slightly kind of complex and, and, and a little bit insecure about themselves, uh, that you start projecting all kinds of very sort of arrogant thoughts on the people you meet. And so quite quickly, I, I, my first friends when I moved to, to Paris were actually foreigners. And I felt like, um, like, okay, yeah, I'm just gonna, it's just, I'm just gonna treat this like another expat experience. What was funny though, is that until then, I'd never had a problem uh, identifying as a French person, and no one really ever questioned that. I, I, if I'm not in France, I'm fine being French, and people tend to accept that. Like, there's not that many questions asked. But when I was in France, and people, you know, yeah, sure, I speak French, and, and there, there, there's there's no accent there, so that's okay. But I, I am um, sometimes some of the references didn't didn't really get by, and some of the social habits or, or ways that people have to inter, uh, to interacting each other. I'd moved from Canada before, and Canada, like North America in general, is very sort of people are so friendly in a in a very some French people would call it artificial. <laughs> like there's just an ability to have small talk to to be able to 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 be a fr- to have to be friendly to your neighbor. And in Paris, it's a bit harsher. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you kind of got to have to get used to that, but then you realize that it's all, it's all just different. And, uh, the moment I feel now I definitely don't have as many questions and I feel French is just because I stopped caring and it doesn't mean anything to be French or English. I mean, I am what I am and my passport says it. So, you know, screw it. <laughs> and that's how you became a real Parisian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that and peeing publicly, you know, that's also a big thing. Public <laughs> urination is a key step towards Parisianness. Yeah. I did not realize that. Next time, it's very important. Next time, like I, I walk through, you know, Paris, I, I will, I will keep that, I will keep that in mind. Um, okay, so I loved, I love the story. One of the stories that you tell in, in, in your show was um, of your visit to the pharmacy, the French pharmacy, and how different it is from going to a North American pharmacy or, or really maybe any pharmacy around the world. Okay, what, 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 what is the main difference? Um, there's a number of differences. One of the one of the big ones was was the surprising popularity of, of suppositories, and that was really uh, a bit jarring for me when I first got sick and had a cold in, in Paris, and I went to the pharmacy and asked for a pill or something just easy to take care of that that this headache or just to you know stop start decongestioning my my face a little bit. And the guy said, "Yeah, yeah, you can use a suppository." And I was like, oh, "Excuse me, what?" And he said, "Yeah, a suppository. You know, it's like this tiny little space rocket you put inside your butt, goes on a little adventure." You know, at the end, you feel better. It's like, no, I know what a suppository is. But, you know, like the problem area is up here. It's in the face. I don't see why my butt's got to be part of this equation. You know? So, yeah, that was uh, that was one of the big uh, the big things that that, that 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 was a big differences. Yeah. And did it work? 
it worked remarkably well. And, you know, I think at, at the end of the day, it, it comes down to, to the element of surprise, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's just uh, your headaches up here. It's gearing up. It's setting like, where we were camping out. There's no way that whatever he's throwing at us is going gonna, is gonna to get to us. And then they realize, oh, no, we forgot about the underground tunnel and the trap door. <laughs> so, so this is good to know now, actually, because, you know, the, the cold medicines in China are now very tightly controlled or inhabited over the last year. So, you know, now we have, you know, an alternative. So this is this is this is excellent information. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and um, what has Belgium ever done to you? This was like <laughs> this was uh, so so just in your in your act, you do you do poke some light fun at, at, at Belgium and Belgians, which, you know, this is not the first time I have heard Belgium as, you know, the butt of um, well chosen word. Thank you very much. <laughs> the jokes um, in in Europe. I mean, when I was watching it, I thought, wow, man, like, is is there a could there possibly be a Belgian in the audience? And and I was afraid for your safety. <laughs> um, I have I have made that jokes to to Belgians. Thankfully, I've always dealt with really friendly friendly crowds. Um, and yeah, it's it's I'm not af- I'm not afraid to say it. It's just a cheap a cheap joke that <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think the shock value is what gets people I've changed yeah. it though I've done this joke in Australia and I had to uh, specify you know to, that uh, to change it to New Zealand or to say, explain that Belgium is to is to France what New Zealand is to Australia and it, it got raucous applause you know <laughs> well I think I think every region or every country has that you know sort of butt of the joke right um, so well, what yeah, is it for China that's a good question. We'll have to. I'll have to ask. I'll have to ask. It somebody. might be like a province or something, like yeah. or like Hunan or something like that. Yeah, those, you know? like, those Hunan. I'm, I'm going to get in so much trouble. I, I have no. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. There might be some like uh, this. Might be it. Like I might be me. You know. I don't. I don't even know. <laughs> um, so um, one of the things you talk about in your show, and uh, and is just just how insane it is that we are in China. Like we are. We get together in these indoor spaces, maskless, um, all the time, and in like all sorts of ways. And it's the, the worst part is that like like we still we're still high and mighty about how yeah we learned how to wear the masks here, and we knew we did the right thing. Like it was like it was our choice, like like it's our our personal sacrifice of putting a mask on that changed everything. And we still wear our mask, but what do we do? The first moment we walk into a crowded room is take it off. Like, it's just so ridiculous. It's the funniest thing. And I make that, you know, we're wearing it outside where it's just, there's no, I mean, the, the, the risks are so low. And then I go into Jingye or something <laughs> and I take it off. That's the first thing I do. It's really, really funny. Um, but it's, you know, you talk about these little details that just had me on the floor. Um, like, you know, after lockdown, you you had your favorite temperature reading, which is the funniest thing. Because, I, I, you know, I had something similar. Like, I'd be like, oh, yeah. 30, 36.3. Fantastic. <laughs> but your favorite reading was like no reading at all. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've walked into a place and just sort of like, you know, the 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 temperature, the, the thermometer didn't work. And they'd be like, okay, just write something down. No, it's clearly, it's all for show, right? It's, and, it, and, and that's, it just, it's just, it just, I feel bad for the Bowans, really. I get that those, they're the guys who, who have to deal with this stuff all day and it's it's got to be super boring and, and like what's I, I i'd like to know if any single case has been caught this way at a temperature check it's like oh this guy is uh, one degree over 37 uh let's see if uh, let's get him tested immediately i think you know like just like 
Nah. Honestly, outside of the airports, I can't, it's it's hard to imagine, or the or the quarantine hotels, I guess, as well. Like that's where the cases are coming. I, I you know, but I, I don't know. <laughs> um, so tell me about your day job. Well, what's what what is France Twenty Four, and what do you report on? So France Twenty Four is a uh, international uh, news channel, meaning a, a news channel that covers international news, um, and uh, it's based out of Paris. It was built actually to be some sort of uh, French version of the BBC World Service uh, or or CNN. Um, it was actually built by uh, former French President Jacques Chirac around the time of the Iraq War, uh, when France was opposed to that war, and he wanted kind of wanted the French sort of. The French version of events, or or the French perspective on the news, to be to get out there. Um, that's sort of the origin story. But then uh, we quickly found out we don't know what the French version of the news is, because it turns out the news is kind of the news, right? So yeah, we might have a bit more French-centered stuff. But like a lot of our audience is uh, around the world, quite quite a lot uh, in in Francophone Africa as well. And uh, I'm um, they're currently their only correspondent in China. Uh, there used to be another one down in Shanghai, so it's not many of us. I mean, which means that I. I cover basically anything and everything that has that relates to the news or or that I can successfully pitch to my editors uh, back in Paris. So, I mean, a lot of what I do is just, you know, the live reporting on on whatever is breaking, you know, from a balcony in my office uh, saying, oh, this is the latest in, you know, diplomatic relations. And every now and then as well, I'll go out there and do a story about um, about whatever I can get to, to do or whatever, pitch, uh, whatever pitches get accepted. I mean, um, currently working on a story about real estate uh, prices that are soaring in uh, in the China's biggest cities and trying to put that together. Uh, but before that, did a story about uh, period poverty and uh, the people trying to change attitudes towards um, towards periods in China and and trying to sort of break that social taboo. So it's it's kind of it's a fun job for me to to be able to to cover all these different stories. Um, how long have you been based here? Uh, now, moved into August 2018, so it's been like two and a half years-ish. What do your bosses at France 24 think about your stand-up work? Um, have you had that conversation? They've never brought it up as it being a problem. I mean, I'm still, I mean, I'm, it's still a hobby, you know? And like, I do, uh, I do like a long headlining show every now and then. And I, I used to have a monthly, a monthly sort of half-hour show as well in Paris. But it's still flying under the radar, so... It's never been a conflict of interest and there's never been like, a, it's going to be a, a problem if, if the funny man is, is the same guy as, as the guy who's on the news. So no, I've had bosses come see my shows. Uh, if, it was awkward, if anything, uh, just because I don't like having my bosses in the room and I regretted even, you know, sharing the poster on, on social media. But, but no, so far it hasn't been a problem. Speaking of flying under the radar, um, I, I want to talk about something you po- just posted on Twitter. Um, something called the, the, or at least something translated as the Beijing Cultural Market Comprehensive Law Enforcement Corps. Um, find an open mic comedy show, 50,000 yuan, uh, for some kind of content violation. So this isn't something I've heard of before. Um, is it, is this going to affect you? Is this something that worries you at all? Uh, me personally, uh, not, not so much. I think it's just kind of, it fits well within the, the the general trend of what we're seeing in China in terms of like more drastic control over every aspect of life. So not particularly worried, but I know that within the stand-up community, community uh, there you know it was shared quite widely, and like some people were worried. And the thing is, like we self-censor. Like there's if you're gonna do stand-up in China, and if you want to be able to keep doing it, you you have to you know you have to stay away from those red lines. I also think that it's 
I mean, you know, it's it's not it's not as a foreigner. I'd rather if if someone's going to make a political political joke, I, I don't want to be because the worst thing that's going to happen to me is, um, you know, maybe get expelled or or something like that. And it, and it's shitty for everyone around for the venue owners who I accepted to host you. They're going to be in trouble. So you know, if someone wants to take that risk, they might they might as well be be you know Chinese. You know, that they, if they want to ex- exercise and express their freedom of expression, then it, should, it might as well be them. Yeah, I, I agree, and it's it's interesting. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot, um, just in terms of what I'm doing here as well. I mean, there there is a line, and I don't, you know, I, I can't cross it necessarily. I mean, I, no, I can't cross it. I mean, I don't, and I don't know, but I don't know what that line is necessarily. I know some things, but I can't, you know, there there are some things that I, I don't know. And it's really it's really too bad because you also see like you do, and you know, you do wonder what what it could be like in in different circumstances because this is like. Like some of this, some there's some fantastic comedy that coming out of China. There's and and like what if people could say everything that was on their minds without being you know too careful? But that also means some people are very good at at kind of like hinting at stuff or or kind of again like saying things flying under the radar. And I've seen some pretty bold things, and I was like, wow, okay, good for you. And I I don't think that crossed the line, but kind of kind of did make you think anyway. Do you think being a stand-up has helped you become a better reporter, or vice versa? Um, I think I, in terms of the performance aspect, cause I'm a, I'm a TV reporter, um, the ability to, um, you know, compose myself before live hit on TV, uh, to sort of keep, keep, you know, keep my nerves, uh, sort of under control before being on air, remembering as well, like the way I write, uh, my, my live hits is, you know, you gotta, you, you work on bullet points and then you sort of like memorize them quickly. And like, it's kind of the same process, but just the content that changes for both, um, and then, you know, maybe uh, like so much of it of stand up is just being able to read a crowd and, and to to potentially adjust what you have to say, depending on the reaction you get. And I think that's just like a very human um, sort of very human skill uh, of being able to read a room and to, uh, to read what people are, are throwing back to you. So if you're interviewing someone. Uh, that's also a good thing to be able to feel if whether you're, you know, you're going in the right direction or whether you're making someone uncomfortable. And if they are uncomfortable, is it the kind of uncomfortable you want to keep pushing? Or if it, or is it the kind of thing where you're like, oh, this is not, let's just change, you know? So I think there are some skills there for sure. But it's more, you know, human interaction. I'm I'm vaccinated now. I, I have I have two shots of Sinopharm. So I, I guess I'm vaccinated. I think I'm vaccinated. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm vaccinated. Um, and, and I think the biggest news this week is going to be the WHO's decision on uh, on whether to put Sinopharm on their emergency um, listing. And that decision is probably coming at the end of this week. Um, let's let's talk about if they don't approve it. What what do you think will happen? Ooh. Um, it'll be interesting to see if then China. That's been such a staunch supporter of the WHO uh, throughout throughout this is 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 gonna maybe change tack because we already saw uh, you know the the the, the director that WHO Dr Tedros kind of switch sides a little bit like just kind of turn do, do, do an about face on China when he said that you know we should keep investigating this lab leak theory um, so I'm I'm more interested in seeing how this is gonna affect. Uh, the w uh, china's relationship with the who especially as um you know the, the, the beijing is so keen on always uh, wanting to appear as the defender of multilateralism and uh, multilateral or international organizations and so it'll be interesting to see how 
how they're going to spin this then if uh, are they going to suddenly say that the, the who is in the united states uh, pocket or something like that just when a few years ago a few months ago the united states was saying that the who was in china's pocket i at the end of the day, I just don't want to be working at the WHO. It's going to be really bad for some of them because in these international organizations, they're just uh, they're just they don't have that much power, and they just have to kind of make all these people uh, work together or, or keep everyone happy in very difficult circumstances. Selfishly, I really hope they approve it. I think I think I think if they do, I think that's just going to be one step closer to opening the borders. And they definitely just, should, uh, and like. Uh, it's at this stage in the pandemic, we need all the vaccines we can get. And if that means that more people can get Sinopharm, I don't, at this point, I don't care where the vaccines come from. Yeah. Even, a, even like Sinovac, which is supposedly like 50%. Yeah. It's the minimum, but like that's still, if you send that to Africa, uh, to a number of different countries in Africa, that still, you know, stops the most, uh, like the worst uh, parts of the disease from really like killing people. It still helps. It's better than nothing. Because yeah. like we're still, not your Western countries haven't been great about you know been vaccine hoarding the whole time. We're we're not doing enough to help the you know the, the global South and you know China could be doing more, but they're doing some. Well, on that note, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't you be talk about suppositories again. <laughs> we, let's, let's, yes, let's go back to suppositories. Thank you so much for coming and, and talking to me. I mean. Come yeah, again. Like, I'd love, to, I'd love to talk again. Yeah, no fun. Problem. That was fun. Uh, you said I had a show on, uh, I'm, I'm on a show on May 15th uh, at Kosi Kosi in 798 uh, with a number of other very funny uh, Beijing comedians. And I've also got another show before that on uh, uh, May 8th, Saturday, May 8th at the Wyatt in uh, Wangjing at the music bar there. It's a really nice venue. Uh, you can see all these events if you follow Comedy Club China on, on WeChat. Follow that account. And they also have an events group. So yeah, make sure to, make sure to have a look at all these events. Okay, will do. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much, Charles Pellegrin. I'll put a link to the Comedy Club China group in the show notes. Next week, China Sports Insider Mark Dreyer is coming. We couldn't talk last week, but uh, we're going to talk after the May 1 holiday. Uh, tune in. Talk to you then. <laughs>